With the Browning semi-automatic pistol still smoking in his hand, Gavrilo Princip turned his back on the tragedy unfolding in the street. The crowd surged towards him. He brought the pistol to his head. But while he hadn't hesitated at all before firing at the Archduke's car, now his trigger finger paused for just the briefest of seconds. It was just enough time for a man in the crowd to reach him, knocking the gun away as others tackled him to the ground. Gavrilo fought against the attack, kicking, punching, scratching, doing everything in his power to free himself. He still had a way out, a way to die a hero's death. He got to his hands and knees and slid a hand into his jacket pocket. There, his sweaty fingers found a small glass vial of cyanide. As several men attempted to haul him to his feet, Gavrilo poured the cyanide into his mouth and choked it down. It tasted like bitter almonds, and almost immediately, his throat began to burn. His captors dragged him up and shoved him against a wall. Gavrilo went limp as the police yanked his arms behind his back, snapping a bone in the process. He was only dimly aware of the shackles biting into his flesh. As the noise of the crowd began to fade into the background of his consciousness, he felt a surge of pride. He'd done it. He'd assassinated his Austrian oppressor, and now he could die a proper Bosnian hero. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, whose murder by Gavrilo Princip led to the outbreak of World War I. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Last week, we followed the story of Gavrilo Princip, a Bosnian teenager determined to do whatever he could to free his people from the yoke of Austrian rule. He assassinated Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austrian Empire, during a state visit to Sarajevo. Princip viewed this as a revolutionary act, hoping to spark an independence movement among the South Slavs in the Austrian Empire. He had no intention of living to see whether his efforts paid off. But unfortunately for him, the cyanide he swallowed didn't do the job. The poison his Serbian contacts had provided him and his co-conspirators with was old, and the degraded cyanide was only strong enough to make him sick. Later in the afternoon of June 28, 1914, under intense interrogation, Princip told police where he'd been staying in Sarajevo. Officers were quickly dispatched to the residence where they collected evidence and arrested one of Princip's comrades. 
Four more conspirators, who had all fled from the scene, were soon rounded up. Meanwhile, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie had been rushed to the home of Oskar Piodorek, the Austrian governor who controlled Bosnia. He'd been Princip's second intended target, but the bullet had missed him and hit Sophie instead. Sophie was already dead from blood loss by the time the car arrived at the governor's mansion. The Archduke, however, was unconscious but still breathing, and he was quickly carried inside and laid out on the green-patterned sofa. Ferdinand had no obvious gunshot wound, but fluid was slowly trickling out of his mouth, and bright red blood splotched the front of his military tunic. So while someone ran to fetch a doctor, others began searching his body for the wound. They tore through the left side of his light blue coat to look, but found nothing. Finally, someone noticed the tiny hole at the right side of the Archduke's collar, where the bullet had apparently entered his neck. But by now, it hardly seemed to matter. Ferdinand took a few final rasping breaths and died. Around three o'clock that afternoon, Ferdinand's uncle, Emperor Franz Joseph, was sitting at his desk in his summer home in Bad Ischl, Austria. Though he was 84 years old, he still worked long hours, rising early in the morning and staying at it until dinner time. Stodgy and conservative to a fault, the emperor refused to permit a telephone in his office. So when the call came with news of the assassination, his assistant took it in another room, writing down the news on a piece of paper. Shocked and shaking with apprehension, the assistant placed the note on a serving tray, as the emperor preferred, and delivered it to him at his desk. Franz Joseph stared for a few moments at the note, not moving or speaking. He'd already suffered through the suicide of his only son and heir and the assassination of his wife, the Empress. This third death might be enough to break him. But when he finally looked up at his assistant and spoke, it wasn't sadness that tinged his voice, but relief. He said, The Almighty does not allow himself to be challenged with impunity. A higher power has restored the order, which I unfortunately was unable to uphold. As we discussed last week, Ferdinand and his uncle, the Emperor, were not close. In fact, they were often the bitterest of enemies. Franz Joseph saw his nephew as rash and hopelessly modern, bent on reform and reorganization. The Emperor believed Ferdinand's modernism would spell the end of the empire he'd been holding together for almost 70 years. He also held a deep and abiding grudge over his nephew's marriage to a woman of lesser social standing. Though he had every intention of bringing the assassins to justice and restoring Austria's dignity, his response suggests he secretly felt relieved that his nephew was gone and his dynastic troubles were over. But little did he know, his troubles were just beginning. On June 29, 1914, the day after the murder, a mob descended on the streets of Sarajevo. Word had spread quickly that the conspirators were Bosnian Serb terrorists bent on securing the country's independence from Austria-Hungary. 
Most of Bosnia's population at the time was Catholic, along with a large population of Muslims. But the Serbs, the ethnic group Princip belonged to, were Eastern Orthodox. Due to their religious differences, many of Bosnia's Catholics and Muslims were predisposed to see the Serbs as troublemakers. As a result, on the day following the Archduke's assassination, Catholic and Muslim citizens of Sarajevo began attacking businesses, churches, and schools run by ethnic Serbs. They were spurred into action by none other than Governor Piodoric himself. Piodoric, working together with the local Catholic bishop and the police force, had installed posters around the city the night before. These posters claimed that subversive elements had infiltrated the city. Loyal citizens were called on to eliminate these subversives, calling it a sacred duty to purge the shame. On the day after the assassination, a Serbian hotel was demolished and windows were broken in the home of a local Orthodox priest. More than 50 Serbs were injured in random attacks of violence and at least two were killed. Other demonstrators marched through the city carrying Austrian flags and pictures of the martyred royal couple. They shouted slogans like, Down with Serbia! and Hang the traitors! Rather than arrest the Catholic and Muslim rioters, the Austrian authorities instead rounded up hundreds of Bosnian Serbs, charging many with trumped-up crimes and holding others without trial. Despite the unrest in the Balkan provinces, the rest of Europe and the world gave little attention to the matter. Assassinations, particularly in that region, were commonplace, and Ferdinand hadn't made many friends during his time as the royal heir. Even Franz Joseph was more relieved than saddened at the news of his nephew's death. A funeral for the couple was hastily arranged, taking place on July 3rd in a ceremony that was widely viewed as low-key and unbecoming a murdered royal heir. No foreign royalty or heads of state were invited. As the coffins were being transported across the Danube River, a powerful storm nearly dumped them into the water. Even in death, Sophie was not permitted to be equal with her husband. Her coffin was smaller and was placed at a lower level during the brief funeral service. She was even denied the right to burial in the Habsburg Imperial Crypt. Instead, the couple was interred together inside Ferdinand's own Archdeton Castle. Meanwhile, Austrian authorities in Bosnia were busy rounding up all those who had helped Princip and his co-conspirators. This included nearly 20 people who had housed them, obtained and hidden their weapons, and helped them travel undetected between Serbia and Bosnia. Although there was at least one Muslim and several Catholic Croats among the conspirators, the authorities downplayed their role. They wanted the assassination to be seen as a distinctly Serbian endeavor committed by Bosnian Serbs in league with the Serbian military. They even went so far as to amend the name of one of the Croats to make it sound Serbian. The trial took place in October of 1914. Princip never denied committing the assassination and was, in fact, proud of what he'd done. During his trial, he stated, I am a South Slav nationalist. My aim is the union of all South Slavs under whatever political regime 
and their liberation from Austria. When asked by the judge how he hoped to carry out that vision, Princip replied, by terrorism. Steadfast to the end, Princip was willing to admit only one regret, that his second bullet had missed Governor Piodoric and hit Sophie instead. He expressed sorrow for her death, saying he'd had no desire to kill her. When asked if he felt sorry for the couple's orphaned children, he snapped back, Do you think I am an animal? On October 25, 1914, the three-judge panel announced their verdict. Nine of the conspirators were acquitted, but Princip and the others who were present on the day of the killing were all convicted of murder and treason. Prosecutors, as well as much of the local pro-Austrian population, wanted to see the assassins hanged. But Austrian law didn't permit the death penalty for people under age 20. Princip was three weeks shy of his 20th birthday at the time of the assassination. Most of the others were teenagers as well. As a result, only three conspirators were hanged, none of whom had actually been present during the assassination on June 28th. Princip was given a 20-year prison sentence. He was quickly transferred to a military prison in the northern part of the empire in what is now the Czech Republic. He was kept in solitary confinement with leg irons at all times and was not permitted any reading material. He died in prison in 1918 after serving some three and a half years. By then, he was malnourished and infected with tuberculosis, which had attacked not just his lungs, but even invaded his bones. At death, he weighed less than 90 pounds. He was buried in the prison yard, but later his remains were moved to a stone mausoleum in Sarajevo, where they still reside. He didn't live long enough to see his dream of a free South Slav nation come to fruition. But he did live long enough to see the more immediate results of his actions. And those results went far beyond anything he, or anyone else, could have ever imagined. Coming up next, we'll look at how Franz Ferdinand's death led to the outbreak of a war that would claim more than 16 million lives in just four years. Now, back to the story. After Franz Ferdinand's assassination in June of 1914, pro-Austrian supporters in Bosnia and throughout the Austro-Hungarian Empire were outraged at the murder of the heir to the throne. Though Ferdinand himself had not been particularly well-liked, his murder was viewed as an assault on Austrian authority and dignity. Someone would have to pay. And that someone was Serbia. It was widely known in the days after the assassination that Bosnian Serbs had been behind the killing. Serbia was an independent nation to the south of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but many ethnic Serbs lived in Bosnia and other areas within the empire. It was assumed by many that the Bosnian terrorists behind Ferdinand's murder had received assistance from their masters, the Serbian authorities. Through interrogations of Princip and the other conspirators, it soon became clear that they actually had been assisted by the Serbian military, or at least by revolutionaries in the Black Hand, a terrorist organization run by Serbian military members. 
The Black Hand had assassinated the previous king of Serbia in 1903 and helped install the present Serbian royal family. Their members had also provided the guns and bombs used by Princip and his allies in Franz Ferdinand's assassination. Though it is still not certain how much the Serbian leadership actually knew about Princip's assassination plans, they had tacitly allowed the Black Hand to operate under their authority for more than a decade. Whether they were directly aware of the plot or not, the hardliners in Austria certainly blamed Serbia for allowing it to happen. Many of Austria's military and governmental leaders were already eager to use any excuse to assert the empire's power over Serbia. They had long suspected that Serbia had designs on taking over Bosnia and Croatia, and they had no intention of letting that happen. The head of the Austrian military, Konrad von Herzendorf, wanted to declare war and invade Serbia. He stated, if you have a poisonous adder at your heel, you stamp on its head. You don't wait for the deadly bite. The problem with invading Serbia was that such a move would almost certainly lead to a war with Russia, Serbia's ally and sworn protector. Austria and Russia were already longtime enemies, and Russia would jump at the chance to launch a counterattack. Franz Joseph's advisors came up with a plan convince their own powerful ally Germany to promise their support to Austria if Russia got involved in the conflict. If Russia knew that all the military might of Germany was ready to be unleashed upon them, they might decide it was better to stay out of Austria's fight with Serbia. On the weekend after Ferdinand's funeral, Franz Joseph sent a letter to the German Emperor Wilhelm II. It stated, the attack directed against my poor nephew is the direct consequence of the agitation carried on by the Russians and Serbians. It is no longer the single bloody deed of an individual, but of a well-organized Serbian conspiracy. He argued that Serbia had to be completely destroyed. On Sunday, July 5th, exactly one week after Ferdinand and Sophie were gunned down in Sarajevo, Wilhelm II, also known as Kaiser Wilhelm, made his decision. He pledged unconditional German support to Austria's endeavors in Serbia. The blank check, as it became called, was a turning point in the events following Franz Ferdinand's assassination. Austria now believed it could act with impunity against Serbia and Russia with the threat of German firepower behind them. It proved to be a serious failure of judgment. Germany had expected Austria to act quickly and immediately dispatch troops to Serbia while sympathy was still high for the slain Archduke. But the Austrians took several weeks to decide on a plan of action. They finally sent an ultimatum to Serbia on Thursday, July 23rd, almost a month after Ferdinand's murder. The ultimatum was intentionally designed to be unacceptable to Serbia. Among other things, the Austrians demanded that Serbia root out terrorist organizations and remove all anti-Austrian propaganda from school books and public documents. They also insisted on allowing Austrian law enforcement to enter Serbia to investigate the assassination plot. After Winston Churchill, who at the time was head of the British Navy, 
read the document, he said, The Austrian ultimatum to Serbia is the most insolent document of its kind ever devised. Austria knew their demands were ridiculous, and, in fact, they were counting on Serbia to reject the ultimatum. Their decision to invade Serbia, after all, had already been made. Surprisingly, on July 25th, Serbia responded by accepting all of Austria's demands except one. They would not permit Austrians to take part in any internal investigations. Many observers in Europe felt that Serbia's capitulation should have been enough to extinguish the crisis. Even Wilhelm of Germany stated, Serbia's response dissipates every reason for war. But the wheels of war were already in motion in Austria. They were out for blood, and they were going to have it. On July 28, 1914, exactly one month after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. They immediately began to mobilize their army for an invasion. At one o'clock in the morning on July 29th, an Austrian warship bombarded Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. These were the first shots of what would become World War I. The following day, Russia ordered a general mobilization of its army against Austria. This came despite frantic efforts by Germany to talk Russia out of it through a series of telegrams sent directly between Kaiser Wilhelm and Nicholas, the Tsar of Russia. Incidentally, the two were cousins, but familial relationships were forgotten by this point. Austria's gamble had backfired. Germany's blank check had not been sufficient to scare Russia away. But it was too late to backtrack now. The only thing Austria could do was mobilize against Serbia, which they began to do on July 31st. Meanwhile, Germany sent a message to Russia demanding that they cease their military maneuvers. Russia refused. So on August 1st, Germany followed through on their promise to Austria and declared war on Russia. That same day, France began to ready its own military. France had no particular interest in Serbia or the murder of Franz Ferdinand, but they had been in an alliance with Russia since the 1890s. They were bound by an agreement to support Russia in any military action against Germany. In response, Germany declared war on France on August 3rd. The dominoes were falling all across Europe. Britain held its cards close to its chest throughout July. Their primary concern was the neutrality of Belgium. 75 years earlier, in 1839, all the countries of Europe had signed an agreement recognizing Belgium as an independent nation and guaranteeing its neutrality in any future European conflict. Now, however, Germany's strategy for war against France called for moving troops through Belgium. Britain waited to see if Germany would change their plans and respect Belgium's neutrality. They didn't. At 8.02 a.m. on August 4th, German troops crossed the border into Belgium and began attacking the town of Liège. Required by a sense of honor to uphold its treaty with Belgium, Britain reluctantly declared war on Germany, joining an alliance with France and Russia. 
The German emperor had told his troops as they mobilized in the early days of August, you will be home before the leaves have fallen from the trees. Wilhelm's words would come back to haunt him. World War I would eventually consume most of Europe and all of the world's most powerful countries. It wouldn't end until 1918, after millions had died. Gavrilo Princip didn't live to see it, but eventually the Austrian Empire he detested so much collapsed into ruin. Germany and Austria-Hungary were defeated by the alliance of France, Britain, and Russia, along with the United States and Japan. An armistice was finally signed on November 11, 1918. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was broken up under the Treaty of Saint-Germain in 1919, leaving Austria with only the relatively small territory it still occupies today. The monarchy was abolished, and a republic was established in its place. More than 60% of the empire's pre-war territory was lost. It took a world war, but Gavrilo Princip's assassination of Franz Ferdinand did eventually lead to the formation of a free and independent South Slav nation. Up next, we'll explore how that happened. Now, the conclusion of our story. Gavrilo Princip told the judges at his trial that he had hoped to use terrorism to bring about the unification of the South Slav lands. Though he didn't live to see it happen, his efforts eventually paid off. As part of the breakup of the Austrian Empire after World War I, a new kingdom was declared in the Balkan Peninsula. Combining Bosnian, Croatian, and Slovenian lands from Austria with the already independent Serbia, a new country called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was formed. It was later joined by Montenegro, another South Slavic nation to the south of Bosnia. In 1929, the name was officially changed to Yugoslavia, which translates to land of the South Slavs. The Kingdom of Yugoslavia remained intact until World War II. In March 1941, Adolf Hitler successfully pressured Yugoslavia to join the Nazis in a military alliance. The move to join the Nazis proved unpopular. As the country's king was only 17 at the time, Yugoslavia was being ruled by a regent who acted as a virtual dictator. On March 27, 1941, two days after the regency agreed to join the Nazi alliance, the military overthrew him in a coup d'etat. The 17-year-old king was suddenly declared of age, and once he was in power, Yugoslavia backed out of the agreement with the Nazis. The German response was predictably swift. That same day, Hitler issued a directive promising to utterly destroy Yugoslavia with what he called pitiless harshness. On April 6th, bombing campaigns began followed quickly by troops. It was all over by April 18th. Yugoslavia was occupied throughout the remainder of World War II. After the Nazis were defeated in 1945, Yugoslavia was reformed, but the old kingdom was done away with. In its place, a new communist Yugoslavia emerged. 
The new Yugoslavia lasted until 1992, when a bloody civil war tore the nation apart. Ultimately, it was broken up into seven countries, based largely on the old ethnic and political divisions from the time of Gavrilo Princip and Franz Ferdinand. So while Princip's dream of a unified South Slav nation finally came to fruition shortly after his death, the experiment eventually failed. During the 75 years that Yugoslavia existed, Princip's reputation in his homeland waxed and waned. He was hailed a hero during the monarchial period. Then he was derided as a terrorist during the Nazi occupation. But his reputation was renewed again under communist Yugoslavia. His boyhood home was rebuilt as a museum, and two concrete footprints were put in place along the sidewalk in Sarajevo, where he shot Ferdinand and Sophie. After the fall of Yugoslavia, the plaques were removed and the monuments were toppled. His boyhood home was torn down, and even his tomb was desecrated. This was largely due to extreme anti-Serb sentiment in Bosnia during and after the civil wars of the 1990s. Though the building on the corner where he was standing during the assassination is still a small museum, the only thing today indicating that anything important ever happened there is a modest plaque stating, from this place on 28 June 1914, Gavrilo Princip assassinated the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sofia. In Serbia, however, Princip is still regarded as the hero and freedom fighter he always dreamed of being. As recently as 2015, a bronze statue of him was erected in a park in Belgrade. The park has since been renamed Gavrilo Princip Park. At the dedication, the Serbian president stated, Gavrilo Princip was a hero, a symbol of the idea of freedom, the assassin of tyrants, and the carrier of the European ideal of liberation from slavery. But what would have happened if Princip had failed? Suppose Ferdinand's driver hadn't made that fateful wrong turn and had just kept driving down the Apple Key like he was supposed to. What if Princip had given up after the failed grenade and gone home like the other conspirators? What if he'd missed? What if Ferdinand had only been wounded? It's hard to overstate just how much the world changed as a result of Franz Ferdinand's assassination. World War I completely altered the politics of Europe in ways that reverberated throughout the next hundred years. Would the First World War have happened if Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated? Many have argued that war between the great powers of Europe was inevitable. Europe was a powder keg just waiting for a spark to set it off, and any other minor provocation could have led to war. But not all historians agree with that assessment. In 2014, the question was debated at a conference at the Diplomatic Academy in Vienna. Richard Ned Lebeau, a professor of war studies at King's College in London, expressed the opinion that the war was not a foregone conclusion. He pointed out that Ferdinand himself may have been able to prevent a great European war. It was largely because of Ferdinand's efforts that Austria had resisted military action against Serbia in earlier years. 
Ferdinand, in fact, was one of the strongest voices for peace in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. When he died, his moderating voice was gone, and the war hawks were able to use his death as an excuse to invade Serbia. If Ferdinand had lived to become emperor in 1916, he may have been able to diffuse the tension building in the Balkans before it spiraled into war. As we discussed last week, Ferdinand and his advisors had entertained several ideas to completely restructure the Austrian government. They even suggested creating a so-called United States of Greater Austria with the different territories governed as semi-autonomous states. Had Ferdinand lived, perhaps this idea would have come to fruition and the ethnic and political tensions in the region would have simmered down before exploding into war. But that's a big perhaps. We mentioned last week that many people, including Bosnian revolutionaries like Gavrilo Princip, opposed the United States of Greater Austria plan. It was seen as another tactic to keep Bosnia under Austrian control and quell the population's anger. There's no way to say whether Ferdinand would have been able to keep the peace, even if he had a full lifetime to try. But it is possible that even if a war in the Balkans eventually erupted under different circumstances, it wouldn't have consumed the entirety of Europe. Simon Winder, an author and historian, argues that without the specific events of Ferdinand's assassination, a world war may never have broken out. He states, The recklessness and stupidity of the Habsburg response to the assassination, the ultimatum of humiliating demands served on Serbia, a response so crucial to the outbreak of World War I, would not have occurred if Ferdinand had lived. Winder also points out that Ferdinand was close personal friends with Wilhelm II, the Kaiser of Germany. Ferdinand's pacifying influence may have helped cool the flames of Wilhelm's militaristic response. This, in turn, may have helped lead to a diplomatic and peaceful solution to the tension between Germany and France. Without those first few dominoes toppling, all of Europe wouldn't have fallen into the conflict. From there, the changes began to pile up quickly. With no World War I, there would have been no Treaty of Versailles. That was the treaty that ended World War I and absolutely decimated Germany, ripping land away and bankrupting the economy. This led directly to the power vacuum and political instability that allowed Adolf Hitler to rise to power in the 1930s. Hitler sought to regain the territory that had been lost due to the Treaty of Versailles which meant invading and occupying the surrounding countries. Without Nazi Germany, there would have been no Holocaust. Jewish Europeans would have been able to remain in Germany, Russia, and elsewhere. As a result, the Jewish state in Israel may never have been created as a homeland for displaced survivors after the war. With no Jewish state in Israel, the entire history of Middle Eastern tensions for the last 75 years would be drastically different. Then there is the question of communism. 
Communism as a political philosophy was around long before the outbreak of World War I, but it hadn't been adopted by any nation until the war destabilized Russia and led to a communist revolution. That occurred in 1917, while World War I was still raging. The Tsar was deposed and eventually murdered. The communist Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, assumed control in 1922, and the Soviet Union was born. After Lenin died in 1924, Joseph Stalin emerged as his successor. Under his leadership, the USSR became an increasingly totalitarian state. He purged his political enemies, executing as many as a million of his own people. Famine killed millions more. After World War II ended, the United States and the USSR emerged as competing world powers, and the Cold War began. This led to an arms race and the stockpiling of numerous, even more powerful, nuclear weapons. Without Franz Ferdinand's assassination and the resulting world war, the monarchy may have survived in Russia as it did in other parts of Europe. Communism may have forever remained just a political theory that was never widely adopted. Without World War II, there would have been no catalyst for the U.S. to develop the atomic bomb. And without the USSR and the Cold War, there would be no nuclear arms race. Maybe in the 21st century, nuclear weapons would still be a nightmarish bit of science fiction. Over the course of a century, millions upon millions of people died as a direct result of the chain of events that started in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914. No one who was alive that day would ever be the same again. Though they didn't know it initially, their world was about to change in dramatic ways. In an age full of political assassinations, Ferdinand's death wasn't considered cause for concern by most of the world. As we saw even in Austria, it was met with relief by many. But within a month, Europe had descended into war, and within a year, that war had become a fight to the death. World War I led to a complete realignment of the European map and the political realities of the entire globe. Almost nothing we know about the world today would be the same if a young Bosnian teenager hadn't fired two shots from a Serbian gun in 1914. A century later, the echo of those shots still reverberates. How would Gavrilo Princip feel if he could see the legacy he left behind? We can only speculate. His goal of toppling Austria-Hungary was accomplished. His dream of an independent, united South Slav kingdom came true for a moment, but it eventually fell, just like the Austrian Empire before it. But perhaps the most important thing to Princip would be his personal legacy. His name is known the world over. Throughout the past century, he's been revered, loathed, blamed, and idolized but he was never forgotten. Like the Serbian political martyrs he'd admired as a child, Gavrilo Princip will always be remembered for slaying a would-be emperor and changing the course of history in the process.
Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Scott Christmas and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. <laughs>